Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt, and this is Q&A number four. No guest today. It's just me answering questions from patrons. Before we dive in, I want to encourage you to treat this episode like a buffet. Please don't be intimidated by the length of this episode. I tried to make it really easy for you to jump around and listen to the questions and topics that are most interesting to you. Some of you had been asking if I could categorize these Q&As a little better, rather than having a random mix of questions in a random order. And I tried to do that this time. I split all of the questions into five categories, and I put the different categories and the timestamps right there in your podcast app and in the show notes. So if you want to browse for the different topics or specific questions, feel free to do that. You can obviously listen through the whole thing in order if you want to, but again, please feel free to treat this like a buffet. So in this Q&A, I tackled questions from the following different categories. The first category, I got a lot of questions about my personal climbing, my training or training in general, and then some of my goals and goal setting. So that's all lumped into the first category. Got a lot of questions for that. The second category, I got some questions about nutrition and disordered eating and things like that. The third category were questions about van life or my current lifestyle living on the road and questions about my personal life and getting to know me a little bit more. Fourth was fun or funny or other random questions. And then finally, questions about podcasting or what I've learned from all these episodes and from doing the podcast and things like that. And there's definitely some crossover with training and climbing and things in that category as well. So yeah, again, there's timestamps right there in your podcast app or in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And I wrote short descriptions of each question so you can navigate those more easily as well. I decided to go big with this episode because this is actually the last Monday episode that I have planned for 2021. I'm planning to give myself a little vacation for the second half of December. I did that last year and it was really, really valuable for me to take a little mental break and to recharge. And I'm really excited to do that again. So this will be the last regular episode of the year. I'm planning to put out one more follow-up this coming week uh, with Paige Klassen, which I've already recorded. I'll put out a teaser for that later this week, along with the full episode for patrons. So keep your eye out for that. And otherwise, you guys are on your own for a few weeks. So it's a good time to catch up on old episodes. We're getting close to 100 in the catalog so far. So lots of nuggets to catch up on if you haven't listened to all of them already. On that note, I want to make a couple announcements about the website. A few months ago, I made a page called Top Lists that I put on the website under the Episodes tab, and that is a collection of my favorite episodes, most popular episodes, etc., 
in a number of different categories. So whatever you want to listen to, if you want to hear the elites talk about elite performance, if you want to listen to climbing legends tell stories, or if you want to hear adventurous stories or just have some laughs or hear about training or nutrition or about bouldering or trad specifically, whatever it is, I made a lot of different categories and tried to make it really easy to find episodes that you'll love. So check that out at thenuggetclimbing.com. Click on the episodes tab at the top of the page and there's a drop down and click on top lists. That's a really easy way to browse for great episodes. So check that out. I also made a brand new page called Stephen's Favorites. And this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I finally made a page that is a collection of favorite books, book recommendations, audiobooks, films that I love, podcasts that I listen to, favorite apps that I use on my phone, favorite products that I use, etc. So I will be adding even more to that as time goes on, but there's already a lot of my favorite books, audiobooks, podcasts, etc for you guys that want to check that out. So again, that's Stephen's favorites at thenuggetclimbing.com. If you need some books or podcasts to listen to over the holidays. And finally, just a quick update about Patreon. In the past for the Q&As, I've just gotten questions from $10 or more patrons. And this time I did it a little different. I was having trouble getting enough questions to fill the Q&A. So I reached out to all of my patrons and got so many good questions. I just felt like I needed to tackle as many of them as I could. So as far as Patreon goes, I might be shifting those tiers around a little bit in the near future. I'm planning to add more perks to the $10 tiers and the higher tiers for the podcast. I've got some new bonus episode ideas coming soon. And I think I'm going to make the Q&A question submission available to all patrons from here on out. So that's just one more perk to sweeten the deal. If you've thought about signing up for Patreon for $5 per month. And again, I'm really excited to add some new content at the $10 tier very soon. All right. I think I covered everything important. Again, I'll be back in early January with regular weekly episodes. And in the meantime, please enjoy this Q&A number four with yours truly. All right. The first category is questions about my own climbing, my training or training in general, and my goals and goal setting. And this first question is from Oscar. First of all, I just want to thank you. I love your podcast. I listen to it when I work and it literally gets me through the day sometimes. So thanks. Thank you, Oscar. I appreciate that. Also, I would like to know all about when you climb in the dark. I've seen you climb with a headlamp and I would just like to know how dark is it? What time is it? How cold is it? And what's the approach like when you do that? Are you close to civilization? Are you alone? 
The dark and cold winter is upon us here in Sweden, and I'm literally one centimeter away from sending my boulder project. I went climbing on it once a few weeks back, and I walked alone for 15 minutes through a pitch black forest after work and climbed for more than one hour in like zero degrees Celsius, cold and afraid. And I wondered, do people really do this? How cold of weather have you climbed in? What do all the pros do? Yeah, really good questions, Oscar. Night climbing certainly has become more and more of a thing. I've done a lot of it this year, and from traveling and climbing with people, I've noticed that a lot of other people are doing it very often as well. So it's a really good thing to be able to do in the summer uh, when it's hot during the day. Often you'll get better conditions at night. And I've been surprised. I've actually been doing quite a lot of night climbing here in Leavenworth this fall, where I am right now because the days are so short. And to my surprise, it's actually not much colder at night once the sun goes down than it is during the day. So it actually works pretty well. So yeah, I'll touch on uh, two parts of this. The first one is the lights. And then uh, the second half of it is some of the considerations and maybe tips I would recommend for staying warm when you're out climbing in the cold. Because I do think it's a really valuable skill to work on to be able to climb in cold conditions. It just gives you that many more chances to send your project. So yeah, the first thing is lights. Um, I do have a headlamp. I recommend getting a decent headlamp, either that's rechargeable or with rechargeable batteries. Uh, I'll link to some ones that I like in the show notes. And I also have my favorite batteries, rechargeable batteries, and my favorite lights uh, on Stephen's favorites page on the nuggetclimbing.com. So you can find them there. And please do use those links if you want to buy something from Amazon anyway, because you'll pay the same and that'll give me a little bit of a kickback, which is really helpful. So get a headlamp and then make sure that you get some really good rechargeable LED lights. And the thing to search for is something along the lines of rechargeable portable LED work lights. Type that into Amazon and you should be able to find tons of these different lights. They're all more or less the same. They all come from China. They just have different brands, logos on them. That doesn't mean they are all the same. You know, there's different manufacturers making these things and some are better than others. But I would just find some of these rechargeable lights that have good reviews, anything over maybe 4.5 out of five stars average with lots of reviews, hundreds of reviews, uh, those are gonna be great. So I bought my first couple lights from Walmart for $15 each, and those lights work pretty well as far as the light. Um, I think they're 1500 lumens each, but the batteries take forever to charge and I've had them die on me pretty much every time I've gone night climbing. Um, I've since bought two more lights on Amazon that are a little bit more expensive. They're about $30 each. Again, I'll link to these ones because they're my favorite. Uh, 3,000 lumens each. They're about $30 each. But I liked the first one so much that I bought a second one. They charge really quickly. Uh, they're way brighter. And I've never had one of these two lights die on me. I've had sessions, and this answers your second part of the question, where I did a full night climbing session in Upper Chaos in Rocky Mountain National Park. So it's like a two mile hike up into the mountains, sometimes with other people. I've done some of these sessions alone as well, or climbed until late at night when I was alone up there. And yeah, I've climbed, had a session on a boulder for hours, maybe three or four hours with these lights in the dark, and then the two mile hike out in the dark as well. And I've never had one of these lights die on me. So 
yeah, invest in some good lights. You shouldn't have to spend more than 30 or $40. I like to have at least, I think at least two of them. Um, I've used as many as four of them, depending on the boulder problem. Lighting your boulder from different angles will help get rid of shadows and stuff like that. It can be hard to see the footholds if your body is blocking the light and you're casting a shadow. So having multiple lights set up can really help with that. And then I often wear a headlamp as well. If it's a tall boulder and I have to navigate a top out, it's hard to get lights that light up the top out. So bring a headlamp for that. But sometimes you won't even have to use the headlamp. These lights will do the job. It's really fun. It kind of feels like you're climbing in a competition or something out there. It feels really cool. So then the second half of the, the question, how to stay warm, how cold have I climbed in? I mean, I just had a session a few nights ago. I think it was 28 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the session. So that's like minus two degrees Celsius. And it's fine. I mean, I can boulder. I've bouldered in much colder than that. I've sent hard boulders, I think, in 19 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what that is in Celsius. And it's all about how you prepare. I don't, that, for me, that's not ideal. And I certainly can't sport climb when it's really cold. Uh, anything below maybe mid 40s starts to get pretty iffy for me sport climbing. I tend to numb out. But bouldering, cold can be really good for friction and it's just about being prepared so things like having nice base layers for your lower body and upper body can be really helpful um, i have a nice puffy jacket that i bring a really nice hat that's super warm and then puffy pants those are getting more popular i bought some like 30 dollar snowboard pants from walmart and cut the liners out of them and those work really great so Make sure you just bring enough layers to stay warm between tries. And then I often strip all those layers off and let my skin cool down a little bit before I give an attempt on a boulder. And then my final thought here is one thing that really helps is to tuck your shoes inside your jacket between your tries. That's something that I often do. Keeps the rubber from getting too cold, keeps your shoes warm, and they'll be stickier when you step onto the rock if you don't let them get too cold. So good luck, Oscar. I hope some of that is helpful and good luck on your project. Okay, this question is from Taylor. Waco Tanks round two. Are you planning to get back on last year's project? Free Willy, right? Do you have one or more V12 projects that you are thinking about in Waco? I've seen your pyramid for 2021 and it's stacked. It seems like Waco really kicked off a year of bouldering for you. Is it exciting to head back there after gaining so much experience and climbing lots of styles? Also, it was cool to climb with you at Joe's. We met at Kill by Numbers. I did electric fence this fall and thought it was the coolest boulder. Nice. It was good to meet you, Taylor. I remember that day as well. And congrats on electric fence. That's a really cool and tricky V7 for people that haven't been to Joe's Valley. So yeah, Waco round two. I'm heading back there in a few weeks. I do think I will try to finish Free Willy. That's a V10 that I was trying last year. I got incredibly close, couldn't quite seal the deal. I'm hoping it goes down without too much fuss, but I also don't want to let myself get bogged down by it. So I'm not totally sure how I'm going to tackle that, but I want to try it and see how it feels. Maybe be trying some other hard stuff as well and just kind of mix it in a little bit more casually or randomly when I feel good versus making it a priority. Uh, V12s, yeah, I do have one picked out and I have a call scheduled with Steve Mache soon. So I'm going to 
hopefully get his thoughts on this. And I think that'll be really helpful. Um, Martini Wright is a V12 in the Martini Cave. That's a dream climb for me. I think it's probably a pretty hard style for me. I haven't tried the whole thing yet. I planned to try it last year, but uh, tweaked a finger on the trip and couldn't crimp very hard. So I was avoiding that style. It's long and steep and crimpy. So I'm definitely interested in putting a lot of work into that thing. I think it could be really good training, even if I don't do it, which makes the whole thing more appealing. So that's on my list, but I'm planning to talk to Steve Mache very soon, bounce some ideas off of him and get his thoughts, and I'll have a better plan after that. And yes, it is exciting to go back to Waco. This has been a really fun year of bouldering, and I feel like I have a lot of momentum with bouldering right now. I feel like I'm in a really good groove and seeing really good progress. And I'm hopeful that I feel the difference going back to Waco this year. It's always really fun to revisit an area a year later and notice what's changed, what feels easier, notice that you've got stronger, etc. So I'm hopeful for that. We'll see. That feeds well into these questions from Casey. What's on your Waco tick list? What about rifle? Yeah, in Waco this year, I did a lot of volume last year. I sent a lot of things V6 to V8 and lots of stuff easier than that. I think I did like 140 something new boulder problems last year. I don't think I'll do nearly as much volume this year. I really want to keep working on this pyramid idea and building up my pyramids. And I have a lot of V9s and 10s to do. And there's a lot of classic V10s that I want to try in Waco that I didn't get to last year. So those are high on the list. Uh, in rifle, I don't know yet. I think I want to pick a 514 and really put time into it this year. And I still haven't sent that much stuff in rifle, so I have a lot of second tier stuff to do. So I think I'll probably pick a hard project and then just work through the 512s and some of the 13As and Bs that I haven't done and kind of try to balance project days with those second tier days. That's kind of what I'm thinking, but not sure yet. Do you prefer to write your own training program or to have a coach? I do a mix of both. It's been incredibly helpful to have Steve Mache helping me out the last year or more, but it's pretty hands-off. We've only done a few calls and then the rest of the year I'm more or less self-coached and I like doing that too. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed making my own training programs in the past, but I don't have as much mental energy to put into it these days. And it's really helpful to get an outsider's perspective. So yeah, I might have to go with having a coach for that one. And I wonder if I shouldn't have done that earlier. I wonder if I could be further along in my climbing if I had invested in a coach years ago. But we'll never know. This is another question from Casey. You've had a really successful year sending a bunch of hard boulders outside, but I've heard you talk about how that doesn't correspond to your indoor climbing grades. Why do you think that is? And does it even matter? Yeah, really good question. And I don't totally know why they don't align very well. I've always felt like I climb about two grades harder outdoors than indoors. And whenever I get stronger inside, I seem to be able to transfer it to outdoor climbing, but it doesn't seem to go the other way. So I just had a really good season of outdoor bouldering, spent lots of time in Rocky, which is a pretty burly and physical style. And I would have thought that it would be decent training for the gym, but then coming back to the gym, I just get my butt kicked. So I think it has a lot to do with 
the ways that those two styles play to my strengths or don't play to my strengths and not just physical. I think I am stronger in some of the ways that help me more or help us more outside than inside. I think I'm really good at tension and keeping a foot on when it's really far away and I'm stretched out and squeezing and body tension and things like that. Whereas most indoor climbing tends to be a lot more about upper body, raw strength, finger and hand strength, etc. And when you take away and when you take away the options and the technique and the nuance, I feel like a lot of my powers are neutralized and I often feel like I hit just a hard limit in the gym as far as what I can possibly hold on to. So that's a big part of it. Uh, conditions are also never as good in the gym. I feel like I'm really good at tactics and strategy and knowing when to try my boulders, when conditions are going to be good, uh, finding really good beta that fits my unique body size and strengths and things like that. It's harder to do that in the gym. So yeah, those are some of the the things that come to mind. And does it even matter? I don't know. I'm always kind of bummed when I feel like I'm sucking or weak in the gym. And I think that raw strength would help outdoor climbing, but it also seems to be pretty common that people that are climbing really hard outside aren't necessarily crushing in the gym on plastic at the same time. So I'd like to get better at board climbing, at spray wall climbing and things like that. I think that tends to be a little bit more similar to outdoor climbing and the strengths that would apply and help me with outdoor climbing. So hopefully that rambling answers your question. And Casey also had a question about night sessions. Do you like night sessions? It's hard for me to stay out late and climb well at night because I usually go to bed early. Seems like you've done a lot of night climbing this year and it's worked well for you. Is it hard to fall asleep when you get home? Yeah, the really late nights in the summer, I don't think are ideal. I do work pretty well later in the day. I have a harder time waking up early and climbing well. It's much easier for me to stay up late and climb hard in the afternoon or evening or even late at night. But this summer I was trying a boulder at two o'clock in the morning because it was so hot during the day. And that was pretty that was pretty rough. That was definitely not ideal. I would drink a little bit of a coffee on the drive out at like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., rally, try hard, but just feel kind of groggy and out of it on some of those sessions. Uh, I was able to sleep fine afterwards because you just feel exhausted and you can't wait to crawl into your bed. But um, yeah, that's a little on the late side for me. I don't think it's ideal, but you know, sometimes it's worth it if that's the only time when conditions are good. So if you're living on the road and trying to climb your round like me, I think it's a useful skill to be able to adapt, but there's also a lot of research on different people thriving at different times during the day. And maybe you're more of a morning person and that's fine. This question is from Jimmy. Favorite endurance workouts on a home 45 wall? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, the short answer is I probably wouldn't focus on endurance on a home 45 degree wall because it's too hard. Um, when I think of endurance, I think of much lower intensity than that. So I would probably try to spend most of my time doing endurance on a lower angle wall or even doing easy foot on ladderings on big rungs on a campus board or something I've done. This is mind numbing, but it actually works pretty well is arcing on a hangboard. <laughs> it sounds miserable and it kind of is, but 
I would go out into my garage and as part of my warm-up, I would basically just pretend I was traversing. I would keep my street shoes on and just stand on top of the kick plate. And you could use a chair or a stool for this. So you're not quite standing on the ground, but you're standing on a really good foothold effectively and just traversing around on a hangboard using all the different holds and stuff. I think it'd be hard to do with a hangboard that doesn't have a lot of good holds on it. I was using an old wood grips metolius board that had tons of jugs and I would just switch different hand positions and things like that. But that's a way you could kind of hack endurance training at home if you're in a pinch. And then for the workouts I would do on that wall, you could do circuits. You know, I've talked about this stuff with Steve Bechtel. Uh, check out my last follow-up with him. We talked about some ideas there. It's way more on the strength side, but some of that alactic capacity training, doing like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off on boulder problems, things along those lines. That's hitting an element of endurance. And then one thing I have done on a home wall is built a simulation that's really similar to a project. So I had a project years ago at Smith that I figured out was about, I can't remember now, maybe 20 moves on a specific hold style. And I just tried to set like a 20 move circuit that had similar size holds, kind of similar moves. It wasn't really a replica, but it was just kind of approximately the right intensity, the right amount of time on the wall. And I would do six rounds of that with a 10 minute rest in between each attempt. So lots of rest, pretty high intensity circuit. And that's the type of thing you would do to sharpen the sword, so to speak, right before your season. So probably not an endurance workout that you would do all year round or all training cycle, but just something to throw in towards the end as you're coming close to your season that's really specifically targeted towards a project that you want to do. So those are some ideas, and I hope that is helpful. Okay, this question is from Carl. Six out of the last 10 boulders you've posted on the internet, you've done with a knee pad, a tool invented and popularized well after these boulders were established and their grades consolidated. How do you adjust your personal grade when building out a pyramid to account for this? Do you worry at all about diversifying the hard boulders you spend time on to build a diverse skill set? I've become more self-aware of this as I've realized I have a very specific style sweet spot, albeit one that does not depend on equipment. Yeah, this is a really good question. And I'll admit I got a little defensive when I read this for the first time, but I think it brings up some really good points and I think it's worth talking about. I think there's a really simple answer to the adjusting personal grades part of this question. And that is simply that I just always take whatever grade I feel like the problem was the way that I did it. So for example, if I found a knee bar on a boulder that no one else used and it made it significantly easier, I would just take whatever grade I felt like I had earned the way that I climbed it. So to get into some of the nuance here, I would actually challenge the premise of this question a little bit. You know, Dave Graham's been using knee pads since the early 2000s, so almost 20 years now. And yes, they are becoming more popular. More companies are making knee bar pads, so more people are getting proficient at them and more people are finding knee bars on climbs that no one has used knee bars on in the past. However, it's, I think, really tempting to see that someone has used a knee bar and automatically assume that it makes the climb significantly different or easier. 
And oftentimes that's not the case. You know, the, the grade spectrum is a spectrum. Nature doesn't perfectly divide boulders into V6 and 7 and 8 and 12 and whatever else. There's a spectrum of V10s. There's a spectrum of V11s. There's a spectrum of V5s. And when I think about a lot of the climbs that I've done recently where I have put a knee bar pad on, and I'll actually use a specific example here. So when I did Eternia this summer, V11 in Rocky Mountain National Park, I did end up sending it with a knee bar pad. Um, I actually first tried that knee bar on day six and I dismissed it because I thought it was harder to do it with the knee bar. I thought this is a terrible knee bar. It's super technical. It skates out all the time. It's not worth the hassle and I should just stick with this other beta. And then I got insanely close many, many times over the next several sessions. Really couldn't have got any closer without doing it. And then on day 10, I came back and decided to try the knee bar again. And I found a way that was super tricky to use the knee bar that gave me just an extra split second to get my fingers in this hold a very specific way. So I'd stuck this move a bunch of times from start, but my fingers are pretty fat and I had to take that hold a very specific way. It's a weird shaped hold and it's almost a pocket or a slot and I had to hit it like a centimeter higher than I had been hitting it in order for my ring finger to go deeper into the hold so I could kind of finger lock in the hold. And then when I would spin around and go feet first, you can watch a video of me doing the climb on my Instagram at Stephen Dimmitt if you want to know what I'm talking about. But yeah, if I got my fingers in the hold the right way, I could do the end of the climb. And if I didn't, I couldn't even do it in isolation. So the knee bar ended up giving me that extra split second to get my fingers in the right position of the hold. But here's the thing, I would guess that nine out of 10 people that would go up there and try that climb would try the knee bar and they would think it was harder to do it with the knee bar. You know, maybe they have slightly stronger fingers than me. Maybe they're just bodies a different size. They have different strengths, whatever. And they wouldn't find the knee bar helpful. So for me, it's not like that knee bar made the climb a different grade. You know, maybe it brought it down one-tenth of a grade or a twentieth of a grade. I don't know, but it was just the tiniest bit that I needed. I was already getting so close and ended up making the difference. So I find that that is the case more often than not. It doesn't usually change the grade. Maybe it just makes it fractionally easier and maybe it only makes it fractionally easier if you're really good at knee barring. I think that's another thing that people don't take into account. My friends Chris and Heather Widener are both absolute knee bar wizards. I've had them on the podcast and both of them use knee bars that I would never even consider using. I've even tried some of them and just thought, this is way harder with this knee bar. What are you guys doing? But they're so good at knee barring. They've built that skill set to such a proficient level that they are able to use that tool a lot more in their climbing. Kind of in the same way that someone who spends all their time training finger strength and has really strong fingers can use different beta than someone who hasn't done that. It's a little different, but I don't think we can just dismiss the skill element of knee barring. And then my final thoughts as far as the, you know, six out of 10 boulders you've posted on the internet. I don't post most of the stuff that I climb. So... I get where you're coming from. You've seen my posts on Instagram. A lot of the recent ones have had knee bars, but I think I've done like 70 boulders V7 and harder this year. I've maybe posted 
20 of them, probably less than that. And most of them didn't use knee bars, including many of the V9s I've done this year, several of the V10s I've done this year, or maybe the knee bar was for the very easy part of the climb and it was just a comfort thing because the knee bar is sharp or something like that. And so, yeah, I think I have a pretty good reference to make that judgment of, I still think this climb is this grade and it feels consistent with everything else I've done, even though I used this tool. The final part of the question, do you worry about diversifying the hard boulders you've spent time on to build a diverse skill set? Yeah, I always try to do that. And the pattern for me is usually to break into a new grade in styles that suit my strengths. That just makes sense. Those are the ones that you're able to do first. And then over time, I always try to backfill and round out my skill set at any given grade. So at this point, I've done a very wide variety of V9s and I've done a pretty wide variety of V10s, but all my V11s, they're different, but they're all somewhat similar. And I do hope to diversify myself at that grade eventually. But my first V12 will probably be similar. It'll probably be steep and thuggy, you know, more of a body strength climb and squeezing and things like that versus just hanging on by your fingertips on tiny crimps. And who knows, maybe there will even be a knee bar on that first V12. I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, this next question is from Tim. From listening to your podcast for over a year and listening to almost every one, I have gotten the sense that you enjoy sport climbing and bouldering a lot, in particular, hard sport climbing and bouldering. It seems that you always have an objective or are training for something harder in your climbing. And I was wondering if you ever climb a lot well under your limit just for fun. And if so, what are some of your fondest memories of climbing? Yeah, that's a great question, Tim. A couple different elements to it. The first thing I'll say is that, man, I have a lot more fun when I'm trying hard. I have a lot more fun when I'm working on something challenging for me. There's more satisfaction in the process and in accomplishing the climb if I do. So I definitely seek that out most of the time. Most of my goals, most of my trips, most of my climbing days are oriented around trying to do something challenging. It's not always at my limit. I still get a lot of value and satisfaction out of climbing things that are, you know, second tier, two grades or even several grades below my limit, but they're still not easy. Yeah, I spend most of my time doing that. But yes, of course, occasionally I do just go romp around in the woods. Um, some of my favorite days bouldering are just running around with a tiny little slider pad, not even having crash pads and just, you know, basically a little piece of carpet, throwing it down under an easy climb, putting my shoes on and just... I love to do this in the buttermilks, for instance, just run around and climb all these V0s and 1s and V2s that are high and technical and beautiful and uh, just get a lot of mileage in. So I do that every once in a while. And I don't really plan it. I just do that when it sounds fun or when I feel physically tired or wrecked from hard climbing and still want to climb and just move. So I kind of let that happen organically. I'll do the same thing sometimes with sport climbing, but usually I'm still trying to climb like 5'10 or 5'11. I don't really enjoy climbing stuff much easier than that. I just find them to be not as interesting. Uh, the movement on like a 5'7 or 5'8 or 5'9, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, 
just not that interesting. So I do mix those days in from time to time, but I have a lot more fun most of the time trying challenging things for me. This question is from Tyler. What is something you worked on or messed around with that you thought was a party trick and then found more crossover to climbing or training? Following up on that, what's something you thought would be useful for climbing, but then later found to be more of a party trick? Yeah, good questions. When I had a finger injury back in 2017, I had sprained a pulley really badly. I couldn't climb and I couldn't pick up a bar. I couldn't pick up a heavy kettlebell or dumbbell or barbell. I couldn't hang from a pull-up bar without some pain. It was that bad for a little while. So I wanted to keep active and do something. And I did a six-week one-arm push-up program designed to help you get to a one-arm push-up or even a one-arm, one-leg push-up. And I'll actually link to an Instagram post from years ago of the result so you can check it out. But it just seemed kind of fun. It just seemed kind of cool. And I didn't know what to expect from it. But coming back to my climbing later that summer, I was really pleasantly surprised at my ability to maintain full body tension, just to keep everything really tight when I was stretched out on a reachy move or things like that on steep terrain. It was really, really good for core, I guess, and body tension. So that was a really cool party trick that ended up serving me in my climbing. And then on the other side of the coin, I don't know, maybe one-arm pull-ups? Um, I mean, I think those can be really valuable in climbing, and most of the strongest guys and gals out there can do them. So I do think that pulling strength is helpful, but I had a summer where I prioritized getting really strong at pulling, could then do one-arm pull-ups, and just didn't see much transfer in my rock climbing from that at that time. So I don't know. I'm actually really close to being able to do one arms again. And now that I'm doing more steep bouldering, and I haven't really been training it, it's just kind of come from doing more steep bouldering. But now it actually does seem like it's more helpful, um, but I don't think pursuing it for its own sake at the exclusion of climbing was a good idea. So hopefully that's not confusing. I guess I would just say maybe pulling power helps, but don't let it take away from your rock climbing. Tyler also asks, what are your dream areas and dream routes? Anything in Canada? Yeah, as far as areas, I'd love to go up to Canmore and climb at Lake Louise and climb at Asafale. Uh, those places have been on my list for a long time, still have never been. I'd love to go back to Squamish actually as well. And there's a route called Spirit of the West. I think it's 14A. I saw a video of Jonathan Segrist climbing that and it just looks beautiful. So that is a route on my list. And then I think I'll save the rest of your question for later because other people asked about goals and dream areas as well. These questions are from Andrew. First, what makes a limit boulder problem limit? And then second, what makes a perfect repeat perfect? Yeah, I thought these were interesting. They made me stop and think for a bit. And we could probably have all sorts of philosophical debate about these questions. But um, I think just thinking about it practically, uh, these phrases get thrown around a lot in the context of structuring a training day. And 
in that context, I think a limit boulder problem or a limit problem bouldering day, you should be trying something that is right near the limit of what you can physically do, period. So maybe it's not possible for you at your current climbing strength and ability, but it's very, very close. So you can at least be working on it and making progress towards it, or it's just within your ability, but it takes quite a lot of effort to be able to climb. So basically something hard enough that you're not gonna send it in a day, you might not even send it in a few days, something that you might work on over the course of weeks or months or seasons, but not so, so hard that you can't even touch it, that you have no business on it. So hopefully that's helpful. It's basically a subjective guideline for finding the right intensity for the type of session that might serve you in your training. That's how people use that phrase in the context of a training program, for instance. And then the second question, what makes a perfect repeat perfect? Yeah, that's probably entirely subjective as well. What is perfect movement in climbing? I'm sure you ask five different people that and they'd have five different opinions. But for me, what that means is, was I really, really happy with how I climbed that boulder or route? So I might try to go back and do a perfect repeat if I felt kind of sketchy on one of the moves or if my foot cut unexpectedly and I you know, clung on and kind of flailed through part of the climb, things like that. I'm trying to just execute the climb as cleanly as possible. Every boulder is going to be different. Sometimes that's going to mean the perfect amount of momentum. Sometimes that's going to mean the perfect amount of flow and control. Sometimes it's going to be coordination, timing, things like that. So it's always different. But basically, what I think about when I think of a perfect repeat is, am I really happy with how I climbed that? Or do I feel like I can improve upon that and just keep trying the thing until I'm really, really happy with how I climbed it? That's a situation where filming yourself on your iPhone and then reviewing the footage of you climbing and dissecting it and really being critical, I think can be really helpful and doing that process over and over until you're really happy with how you look climbing it. Somewhere in my training where I would mix in perfect repeats would be if I was gonna have a projecting or limit bouldering day, I might mix in some perfect repeats as the final stage of the warm up. So let's say I'm gonna try a V10 in the gym on the spray board. I would maybe try to do perfect repeats on a V7 or a V8 that I felt like I could have climbed better than I did when I did it before, or even continuing to reclimb it and reclimb it every time and just see how often you can show up and just execute it perfectly first try of the day or things like that. I think that can be really useful practice. Okay, this question is from Shanna. What is the first thing from the PCC you are going to implement? Yeah, so for people listening, the PCC is the Performance Climbing Coaching Summit. This is basically a course that ClimbStrong put together, a collaboration with a lot of other coaches and trainers in climbing. And it's geared towards athletes or coaches who want to get better and learn a lot about all these different elements of coaching. So there's a virtual summit going on right now. I've been going through all the coursework and I've seen Shanna in some of the live Q and A's. So hello, Shanna. And yeah, the first thing I'm going to implement, I'll share a few things that have stood out to me so far. Uh, the first couple are from Eric Hurst's presentation. I talked about a lot of this stuff with him in our conversation on the podcast. 
but he gave a presentation on basically how to strengthen and take better care of and improve the health of our tendons and connective tissue, basically our fingers. So it kind of just reaffirmed a couple things that I've been experimenting with and made me feel like, cool, I want to keep doing these couple things. So the first one is taking collagen. And this is not a plug for Eric's products necessarily. I'm not getting anything for saying this, but I do think there's value in taking collagen because some of the key amino acids that are plentiful in collagen, we just don't get them from many other foods in the optimal quantities. And our bodies can make some of these amino acids. We can make glycine. I think we can make like two and a half grams per day, but the optimal amount is probably much more than that. And I think making collagen a consistent part of our diet, whether that supplements or seeking out collagen rich foods is probably not a bad idea given how prevalent they are in those soft tissues that are so important for our climbing. So I'm gonna keep taking collagen. That's the takeaway there. Uh, the second one is that Eric is a proponent of doing really light loading on your fingers on rest days. So he basically does something for his fingers every day or six days a week. And I have been still kind of mixing in that no hangs program from Emil. And I really like it. And I really feel like it's kept my fingers feeling healthy and good this year. And I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing that on rest days, maybe just once, maybe twice. You know, Emil does it twice per day. But I'm going to keep doing at least something, just some light, gentle loading for my fingers on rest days. Eric made a compelling case that that can be really helpful for the recovery, getting nutrients to those tissues that don't have their own blood supply. So yeah, I thought that was compelling. It's really easy to do. I enjoy doing it. So I'm going to keep doing those two things. And then the other thing comes from Tyler Nelson's presentation. He talked about velocity training and training power. And my takeaway there is that anytime I'm doing body weight exercises like body weight pull-ups, I'm going to prioritize using more intention for my reps and moving with greater velocity versus just cranking out five pull-ups at a casual pace. He made a pretty compelling argument that we get a lot more value out of body weight or, or lower intensity training if we try to move fast while we're doing it. So yeah, if I'm ever just doing random pull-ups on a rest day in the van or as part of my warm-up, I'm going to really try to remember to use more intention and to move with greater velocity in those movements. This question is from Jordan. Some of you might be able to guess which Jordan based on the question. Have you dabbled much in traditional or multi-pitch climbing? If so, what was your favorite and least favorite thing about either one of them? I have dabbled. I have done some, not a lot. Uh, I've done a fair bit of single pitch trad climbing in the lower gorge at Smith Rock, which is trad climbing, but it's not splitter climbing most of the time. It's kind of like gear protected, technical, collimator face climbing where you're in and out of the crack and things like that. And I enjoy it. I think it's really cool. I think the gear is very intricate and tricky down in the gorge. And that's interesting to me. I enjoy that. And then multi-pitch climbing. I've done a handful of things in the enchantments, like 511, multi-pitch, rock roots, things along those lines, a couple on Snow Creek Wall, and then some stuff on Presick Peak and Kolchuk Balance Rock. 
And yeah, I like all that stuff, but I think the things I enjoy most in climbing are first movement. I find myself really drawn to interesting movement in climbing that often is more inspiring to me than just aesthetics or things like that. And I don't always love the movement of trad climbing. I don't always find it to be interesting, not to dismiss it at all. I think it's very complex and I think I have a lot to learn about it. It's just not my favorite style of movement. And then I also really like physically hard climbing. Like I like the process of trying something and it feels impossible and then you work on it and you figure it out and over time it clicks and gets easier and you start flowing through that. I find that to be incredibly gratifying. And when it comes to multi-pitch climbing, at least, I find that the climbing is hard for very different reasons. It's hard because you've been climbing all day. It's hard because you're carrying a bunch of shit with you, which there's probably some logistical things I can clean up there. It's hard because you're climbing in the sun and it's hot or you're climbing in the shade and it's cold. It just adds a lot of other elements that are awesome. Like that's a great challenge, but it is not my preferred type of challenge to want to tackle. So I like it when the climbing is really hard itself and then everything else is really simple and stripped away. So I love bouldering. I love sport climbing with the draws already hung on the wall and you just feel weightless and you're floating up the pitch. Even if you have to fight really hard, I find that really cool. So I've done some of it. I would like to do more of it. I'd really like to go back and climb Moonlight Buttress someday. That's a dream climb for me. I tried that in early 2020 with my friend Lizzie Van Patten. And it is a beautiful climb. I would love to go back and finish that. But it never quite seems to be at the top of my list. There's always a bouldering area or a sport climbing area or a specific project that I want to go back to instead of diving deeper into trad or multi-pitch climbing. So there you go, Jordan. That's where I'm at for now. Okay, this question is from Eric. One question. What is the softest 514 in the US? Follow up, why aren't you trying it now? That's hilarious. Also, that's two questions, Eric. No, I'm just kidding. I have no idea. That's the short answer. And honestly, I don't really care. If it were my life ambition to send a climb that had the grade of 514A or something attributed to it, then sure, I would try to go seek it out and be trying it now. And I wouldn't be surprised if I could find one somewhere that were easier than the 513Ds that I've done at Smith. But do I want to do that just for the number? No, I don't really care about that. Having said all that, I do plan to make that more of a priority this coming year. I really do want to climb 514. Um, I have a couple that I'm planning to try. One of them is off by itself in the middle of nowhere. And then I'd like to find one that inspires me in rifle and put some time into that as well. So yes, I do want to climb 514, but I'd way rather do a rad one, a hard one, a cool one, than just whichever one is the softest. I feel like that wouldn't really mean anything anyway. This question is from Nolan. 
Aside from the period where you were underfueling, what did your last plateau look like in your climbing progression, and how did you move past it? You've mentioned having a great season after home wall training, but what did your process of identifying the factors that kept you stuck and pivoting to break them look like? I've finally sold out and embraced training and sport climbing to move out of my old trad daddy lifestyle, but I know the steep growth curve I'm on now is going to dwindle, and I'll have to get creative to keep moving forward. I'm interested to hear from others how they addressed it when it comes up. Yeah, I think I can give you a short answer here. What I would say is that all of my best improvements and breakthroughs have come from really focusing on something specific. So when I've been really stuck, it's generally been because I've been trying to do too many things at once. And when I've made really good progress, it's been by ruthlessly stripping down my approach and focusing on one or two things that I wanted to get better at. And those training seasons on my home wall and my garage are great examples of that. It was like two sessions on those boards per week with some fingerboarding focused on like one grip position and one or two strength exercises that I was focusing on. So really high quality sessions focused on very specific things and then doing that for two months and giving yourself enough time to actually make progress at those things. I've also seen that play out really well in sport climbing, spending a whole season or a whole year focused on a very specific style or area. That's generally been when I've climbed some of my hardest stuff. So hopefully keeping that idea or that principle in your mind is helpful. Nolan also asks, have you gotten on Just Do It yet? And why not? <laughs> I think the second part is funny. Uh, you clearly already know the answer. Yeah, so I have climbed on the route in the past, but I have not climbed on it since starting the podcast and talking about it in the last year or two. So there's a few reasons for that. I was going to go try it this spring, and I had an injured finger from... Waco. It wasn't a serious injury, but I had to avoid crimping on small holds, which made going to Smith and trying that route seem pretty pointless. So I skipped it. And I've also gotten really psyched on bouldering in this last year, and I'm feeling a lot of momentum there, and I'm making a lot more progress than I have in any area of my climbing in quite a while. And that's been really cool. It feels kind of addicting, honestly, but I think as long as I feel inspired to roll with that, I probably should. Because I think leveling up my bouldering and my finger strength through that is going to pay dividends in my sport climbing. I don't want to let my fitness backslide too far. So I definitely am going to be doing some sport climbing these next few years. But I'm feeling really excited to try to level up my bouldering, get some other hard sport climbs under my belt as well, and then circle back to something like Just Do It and start spending more time on it later on. This question is from Connor. I would love to hear more about your early days of climbing. How did you progress through your first two or three years of climbing? What did your training look like when you were in the V4 to V6 range? And if you could, would you go back and change anything about your training? Best regards and keep crushing, Connor. Thanks, Connor. Yeah, pretty simple answer here. I just climbed a lot. I was really psyched. I mostly bouldered for the first several years of my climbing, mostly in a little bouldering gym at my university wall at Western Washington University. 
and then trips and summers back in Leavenworth, Washington, climbing on the granite boulders there. And as far as training goes, I pretty much just climbed more or less all the way up to V9 or V10. I had done multiple V9s and I think I had done, yeah, I think multiple V10s probably on the softer side. I think one of them has been downgraded, but pretty dang hard. And I think I also got to about 13A sport climbing before I ever really included proper training. I just climbed a lot. I worked at the university gym as a route setter and as a front desk person. And I just kind of lived there whenever I wasn't in class during college and just climbed as much as I could. Uh, as far as things I would train, yeah, there probably are a few things I would do differently if I could. We didn't have very much steep terrain at that gym. And I think that's still a big part of why I struggle on steep overhanging climbing with a lot of weight on my fingers. I've talked about that a lot. So one thing I'd probably do if I could go back is just do a really simple hangboard workout in the evenings, probably not the first few years, but maybe once I was like V7, V8, V9, something like that, because I was a very unbalanced climber. All those hard climbs were like steep compression, squeeze granite blocks in Leavenworth. I had really bad finger strength relative to other strengths, and that took a lot of effort to catch up later on. So yeah, I'd probably, you know, go to the gym and do a normal bouldering session, come home and then hours later in the evening, do like a 10 minute or 20 minute hangboard workout. Maybe something like what Dave McLeod recommends now, focusing on pretty big holds with a lot of weight on my fingers, maybe like assisted one arm hangs and things like that. You know, twice a week, something like that, maybe three days a week, a really short workout. If I'd done that for all those years, I'd probably have much stronger fingers than I do now. But again, that would just be a tiny supplement to all the climbing I was doing. I wouldn't change the fact that I was climbing a lot and learning a lot every time I went climbing. Uh, the other thing I might change is that I always tried to do a lot of volume. I built really good capacity by going in the gym and just climbing for hours and hours. And that still serves me in some ways, but I think what I would do differently is have more sessions, not all sessions, but just like, you know, one out of every three sessions, maybe. I wish I would have just gone in, warmed up really quickly, and just gotten right to work, picked something really hard, and just projected it for like an hour, hour and a half. Basically just, I would have mixed in more sessions with lower volume and higher intensity and worked on trying to climb harder things. I've seen many of my friends do that and get really strong from that. And I wish I had done a little more of that earlier on and throughout, honestly, most of my climbing life. But yeah, I hope that's helpful, Connor, and best of luck with your climbing and training. Okay, this question is from RJB. You have been climbing a while now, as I have. Thinking back, weren't those first few years of climbing just golden? It was all so new and exciting. Then your ego grows, you set goals, you train, then life happens. You get injured, you get married, start a business, have a kid. Your life changes dramatically. All the while, although you now have less time for trips and days at the crag, that euphoric feeling of years past returns. Yeah, you still train and have goals, but you are more present, more appreciative, because each time you get to climb, it is just such a wonderful gift. You forget your troubles and just move. Have you experienced this arc, so to speak? Do you agree with the whole premise? Where are you on this journey? 
<laughs> Great questions, RJB. I can't say I can relate to the getting married and having a kid part, but I have seen a very similar arc play out with many of my friends who are married, have kids, and are still climbing. So it does seem to be a consistent theme. And I think your premise probably stands. Where am I on my own journey? You know, it's interesting. I've kind of crafted a life centered around climbing that has returned me back to my early 20s in a way. Um, I just feel really excited about it, man. It's really fun. And my entire lifestyle and where I travel to and all of that is kind of working towards some bigger goals that I have. And that feels really exciting. It's always kind of mixed with just being present and enjoying climbing. I think I feel a little bit more grounded than I did when I was younger. Because if we're not enjoying the day-to-day, -day, what's the point? I think I've achieved enough of the big goals in climbing that I've realized that achieving those goals at the expense of the process, not enjoying the process, doesn't make it worth it. So it is really important to me to try to be present and go with the flow and listen to my motivation and enjoy those climbing days. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of all in on it. I'm living in a van. I've built a whole life around climbing and at least for now, really, really enjoying it. So it is a journey. I've kind of had ebbs and flows and I think we all go through different chapters. But yeah, right now I uh, kind of feel like a kid again and it's been very, very fun. These questions are from Luke, trying to remember what you've covered in the last Q&As. So ignore this if it's been covered, but here are my thoughts as a newer patron. What are your goals for 2022 and how do you go about goal setting? For context, I set goals every year and try to balance process goals, achievement goals, and life list type goals. I would be interested to hear if you do anything similar and anything you would be willing to share about your approach, goals that have worked in the past, and even times you've fallen short and how that might shape your goal setting going forward. Interested in both climbing goals, personal goals, and goals for the podcast, future guests, listener counts, ad revenue, and Patreon goals. Don't be afraid to let us hear you dream a little. Well, thank you, Luke. I appreciate this question a lot. It was really fun to reflect on this when I first read it and to see what kind of things came to mind. Uh, as far as the first part of your question, and just as a reminder for all you guys listening, I do have a page on my website for Q&As. So if you go to thenuggetclimbing.com and click on episodes, there's a drop-down menu. Q&As is one of the options. And there you can find all of the four Q&As so far in one place. So if you want to see what I've covered in past ones and check out other Q&As, that's the easiest way to find them. But I don't think I've talked about this, so thank you for the question. Goals for 2022. I really want to climb V12 this year. That feels like a really big number to me. I don't know why. For people listening, I climbed my first three V11s this year, but I think I've known I can climb V11 for quite some time. Um, I almost did that in 2017 on a very short trip. I almost climbed my first V11 back then, but I just wasn't really prioritizing outdoor bouldering at the time. I was mostly sport climbing at Smith. And I think if I had just put more time into bouldering, I would have climbed that grade many years ago. But V12 
feels different for some reason, probably just because of what climbing looked like when I started. It just seemed like an astronomical grade that was completely out of reach in some ways. It still holds that aura in my mind. So yeah, but I think it's, I think it's actually in reach this year and that feels really exciting. So I'd like to climb V12. I'd like to really keep riding this wave of momentum with bouldering and see how far I can take that. But I'd like to do some sport climbing as well and I'd really like to climb 514, 514A. I think those two goals are compatible. I actually have a 14A that I want to try that's pretty bouldery and I think my time in Waco will actually be pretty good training for it. So yeah, we'll see what happens, but those are some specific goals. I have some V12s in Leavenworth that I would like to try that I have not tried yet. And then there's a couple V12s in Rocky Mountain that I did try that I think I can do if I prepare for them specifically. And potentially even a V13 that I tried that seems possible. I don't know if I'm at that level yet, but I'd like to at least put some time into that and see what happens. So yeah, those are some goals for 2022. Uh, those are also all in alignment with my goal to climb Just Do It someday. Those tick some of the boxes for sub goals that I think are important for me to hit on that longer journey. So that gives you kind of a glimpse into my goal setting. I do have long-term goals that I break into sub goals and things like that. I also have a chalkboard in my van with some of my goals so that I see them every single day. I think that's really helpful. I do some journaling on this sort of stuff every once in a while, but I'm also not too systematic with it. I think that's really important. And this last year, for instance, I set out with the goal of doing three routes, 13D and harder. That's what I thought I wanted to do in 2021 and I let those goals shift over the course of the year. I had the finger injury, which changed the trajectory of my spring a little bit. And then I got really psyched on climbing in Rocky Mountain and stayed there much longer than I had planned. And so I swapped that out. And sometime over the summer, I changed that goal to three V11s this year and was able to reach that goal. So I think there's a lot of value in having a guiding light with goal setting, but I also think there's a lot of value in remaining mindful and listening to your motivation and your psych. And just because I thought I wanted to do something at the beginning of the year doesn't mean that it should be set in stone because maybe what I want to do changes and circumstances change and opportunities change. And if you or I or any of us feel really excited about something, I think we should roll with that. I think there's a lot of power in inspiration and motivation so there's a balance there, I guess. As far as goals for the podcast, I actually don't have any achievement goals. Um, I think all my goals with that are process goals. I hadn't really thought about this until you asked the question, but an example of this is one of my goals for 2022 is to reach out to more guests that feel intimidating to me, uh, not because they're unfriendly or intimidating personalities, but just because they're such big people in the world of climbing, people that I've been watching in climbing movies and seeing in the news and things for a long time. So yeah, I guess just to continue to stretch my comfort zone there, I think is a big goal for me this year. Another goal is to think bigger. 
to not let self-limiting beliefs about how many people might be interested in listening to this or how much money I can make in the climbing industry and things like that, not to let those things limit me, I think is a goal. And that's pretty broad and vague, but I guess just to, uh, to think bigger and to be open to possibilities that seem crazy is a goal of mine. And then as far as things like Patreon and ad revenue and things like that, one goal is to partner with really great brands and build relationships with those brands that feel collaborative and really exciting to me. That's something I'm excited about in 2022. Again, I don't have a specific number that I want to attach to that. And that doesn't honestly feel that important to me. Uh, the amount of money I bring in or things like that. I just hope to be able to sustain this lifestyle, keep making better and better content, more helpful content, and not feel like I'm limited by revenue when it comes to things like creating more value for you guys in ways that might be even more helpful. That's all pretty vague. I've got a lot of ideas for projects and things that could be really cool add-ons to the podcast, but I don't have the bandwidth for it. So that would involve hiring people and building a team. Of course, that costs money. So I guess if I have a really exciting idea, my goal would then be to grow enough to be able to make that dream come to life so that all of you get to benefit from it. Yeah, I think a lot of my goals with the podcast have been process goals this whole time, and that's worked really well. And I figure if I keep making a better and better podcast, everything else will fall into place. This question is from Drew. I'm a fellow Washington climber from Seattle, and I remember you mentioning in some episode that you were going to come back to Levy, that's Leavenworth, and try the practitioner this fall. That boulder is on my bucket list as well. What a great line. This fall season has been pretty weak in terms of the amount of rain we've had, so I wonder if you just bailed on Washington. Anyway, if you did come back to try the practitioner, I would love to hear how it went and any lessons learned from the process. Yeah, thanks for the question, Drew. Um, I did come back to Washington. I'm actually here in Washington recording this right now. And I sent the practitioner. Um, I've been back since beginning of November. It was a very wet fall, but Leavenworth's kind of amazing. There's always little weather windows. It's kind of microclimate out there and the rock dries out incredibly fast. And it was one of the wettest seasons, fall seasons I've ever seen out there. But yeah, I was able to sneak in a lot of days actually climbing out there. Uh, conditions weren't great. It was pretty high humidity every day sometimes even a little bit damp uh, with the boulders seeping and things like that. But yeah, it worked out. I came back, got right on that thing as soon as I could. It was a little seepy at first from lots of rain when I showed up. But I think my first day back on it, I fell on the last move in pretty bad conditions. I think it was like 73% humidity that day. And then the second session, I got incredibly close. I tweaked my wrist. I had tweaked my wrist in Joe's Valley on a right-hand sloper, and that final slap to the lip aggravated it, and I had to take a bunch of days off. But then I was able to come back out, taped my wrist, and was able to put it down on a slightly less humid day in mid-November. So 
kind of a strange experience with that one. It actually felt really anticlimactic to do it. I'd gotten really close to doing it in the summer during that insane heat wave and terrible conditions, trying it really late at night. And then I'd gotten really close with horrible humidity and damp holds very early in my trip this time. So it just kind of felt like, okay, I can definitely do this thing. I just need a decent day. And then as soon as we got some decent weather, I was able to put it together pretty quickly. So yeah, it still means a lot. I've always wanted to do that climb, but just kind of odd. It felt a little anticlimactic and it was hard to celebrate as much as I wanted to, I guess. Yeah, kind of strange. Um, other things I learned, night sessions in November are actually doable and maybe kind of rad. It's really weird, but... Again, we were dealing with a lot of seeping this trip. It would rain for a couple days, and then some of the boulders, especially the north-facing stuff like the practitioner, would stay wet as the boulder would seep and water would come out of these little cracks and things in the rock. And some of the best conditions were actually at night when it got cold enough again that the rock would stop seeping and then the holds would have a chance to dry out. So yeah, I was doing night sessions at like seven o'clock at night in November. It's like 36 degrees outside and uh, really high humidity, but somehow it works surprisingly well. So I don't know what the takeaway is there. Maybe it's just to not pay too much attention to the forecast. If you want to go do something, just go out there and make it happen. That leads into this next question with David. David writes, big fan of the show. Thank you, David. As a fellow Washington State resident, although I'm not native and you're living in a van most of the time, I'd love to hear you talk about returning to Leavenworth and any remaining goals in the area. Yes, I love this question. Uh, Leavenworth is very dear to my heart. It always has been. And it was really fun to actually fall back in love with it this trip. Uh, I haven't climbed there very much in several years. I climbed there a lot in my late teens and early 20s when I was a newer climber. And I felt like I got to rediscover it a little bit this fall. And there's so much good stuff there, man. There's so many good hard boulders. That's something I hadn't really realized is how many incredibly good climbs there are to do in the V10, V11, V12 range. And it feels really exciting now that those grades and climbs feel like they're possible for me. So I actually made a list of stuff I want to do in Leavenworth, and there's about 20 double-digit boulder problems on that list. So kind of strange, kind of surprised to be so excited about the home area right next to where I grew up, but I think I'm going to be spending a lot more time in Leavenworth in the next couple of years. I should say that Leavenworth is getting very crowded, so something to keep in mind if you're listening to this and considering going on a trip there. All right, the next category is questions around nutrition and disordered eating and things like that. Just got a couple questions here. The first question is from Carl. 
You often talk about sugar in a vague sense when commenting about paleo, but I want to clarify if you count starchy vegetables in this. I know the strict paleo types tend to think that any sort of carb that isn't fibrous tends to, quote, eventually be sugar in the blood, end quote. That's just to paraphrase. But there's also a definition that centers around mostly processed sugar, so I'm not sure how to think about this. Any thoughts would be helpful. Yeah, great question. This is something that I'm way less concerned about than I used to be. I definitely got sucked down the low carb and keto rabbit holes for quite some time, and I was pretty carb phobic for a while. And I've relaxed a lot as far as that goes. I really do think that carbs, even simple carbs with a high glycemic index, if they come from whole foods, are a very different thing from eating processed foods and processed sugar in particular. So yeah, the more people I talk to that have an education in nutrition or sports nutrition or things like that have made me feel way less concerned about carbs and even simple carbs. My conversation with Tom Herbert is one that had a big impact on me and one that I return to time and again. I've been eating more carbohydrate in the last six months than I had for several years prior to that. And I think it's helping. I think I've noticed more energy in my climbing sessions and better recovery and my weight is stable and I feel pretty good. So yeah, I wouldn't worry about it too much. As far as like the paleo idea goes, I still try to get most of my calories from whole foods. So I do personally try to avoid processed foods most of the time. It does seem like most people who I talk to who have some sort of nutrition education agree that eating mostly whole foods is a really good way to go. So yeah, I eat a lot of white rice these days that has a pretty high glycemic index, but I try to mix it with protein and some good fats, maybe some nuts or cooking oils, mix that with veggies, things like that. If you mix it all together, that can buffer that spike in blood sugar that you're talking about. But even if you don't, I think if you're sticking to whole food sources like that and not just eating a bunch of crap, you're probably going to be feeling and looking and performing pretty well. So yeah, short answer, I'm not nearly as concerned about that as I used to be. This question is from Angelo. Angelo writes, similar to you, I've started down the path of embracing strength training and embracing the body I've been given. I put on muscle very easily and have a high BMI, low body fat kind of frame. I've been training strength this off season and have gained a bunch of weight, but also feel a lot better on the wall. So no problem there. My question is, how do you know when it's time to stop gaining weight? I'm doing a bunch of strength-focused training cycles, and theoretically, if I keep progressively overloading my muscles and eat a surplus with a focus on protein, I will keep gaining weight, right? Surely this isn't sustainable either. When do you know when it's time to maintain? There must be some line between doing strength and focusing on progressive overload while still being in climbing shape. Yeah. This is a really good question. The short answer is I don't think you need to be concerned about this, but there's some caveats to that and I will explain that in more detail. So here we go. I can totally relate to this because when I started embracing my body type and gaining muscle and gaining weight, 
I was afraid that I was going to keep gaining muscle and gaining weight forever, and it freaked me out, and it made me tempted to stop doing what I was doing. But the thing is, if you are eating optimally to support your training, so eating adequate protein, making sure you're getting quote, extra calories on board to support harder training, like I talked about with Tom Herbert, you still will reach homeostasis. And the reason is, and the main benefit of doing this approach is that your body will upregulate all of these different processes. You'll start recovering faster. You'll start rebuilding muscle more quickly. You'll build strength better. Your hormone profile might improve and those things might be in better balance. Your libido might improve, things like that. Basically, your body gets the message that we have a lot of energy on board. We don't need to be skimpy about what we spend it on so we can spend a lot of energy. So as long as you're not trying to pack in more and more and more food as you gain strength and muscle, you should reach a point where the equation balances out because your energy out, so to speak, the amount of energy that you're spending just by training and going about your day and maintaining more muscle mass will continue to go up and up and up and eventually level off and balance out the amount of food you're taking in. This is why bodybuilding is a sport that's difficult, that people obsess about on forums and have all these questions about and all these products, these weight gain shakes and stuff like that. It's really hard to just keep gaining weight indefinitely over time. And these guys that are huge that you see on Instagram and stuff like that, you have to basically force feed yourself an uncomfortable amount of food to continue gaining weight over a long period of time. So all that to say, I wouldn't worry about it. I think your weight is going to level off when you reach whatever body type and the amount of muscle that is optimal for you and your genetics. The one caveat that I will add here is that I don't think the goal should necessarily be to just gain as much muscle as you can. So I would make sure that your training supports your climbing goals and then just eat enough to fuel your training appropriately. So what I mean by that is that a bodybuilder's workout rep and set scheme is going to be very, very different from someone who's trying to just get as strong as they can possibly be. So if you want resources on this, Strong First is a really great website for strength training. I think even better than that might be just reading a bunch of Steve Bechtel's stuff because he's basically taken these principles and applied it as strength training for climbers. But just to give you a quick idea, things like keeping to the 10 rep rule. So keep the intensity really high, try to do no more than 10 reps of an exercise in a workout. So maybe that's two sets of five deadlift or five sets of two deadlift or three sets of three, things like that. And do whatever intensity is hard for those sets and reps. That's gonna train your connective tissue and your nervous system and improve your recruitment in the muscles that you already have to build more strength. And you're not going to just keep building tons and tons of muscle mass from a protocol like that. What a bodybuilder would do on the flip side is they would do a bunch of sets of like 12 to 20 reps and they'd be getting that burn and they're not lifting as heavy weight. So you get big and puffy and bulky, but not as strong as you could possibly be if you were lifting heavier weight for fewer reps. 
So again, you're not going to keep growing and getting bigger and bigger forever, but I would make sure that your training is appropriate for your climbing strength that you want to build and for your climbing goals. And don't forget, as Steve Bechtel says, we are climbers who lift weights. We are not weightlifters. So keep all that stuff in mind and the rest should take care of itself. All right. This next category is questions about van life, questions about my current lifestyle, and some questions about my personal life as well. This first question is from Tyler, and actually Ethan and Luke asked very similar questions, so I'll lump them all in right here. What is something you have in the van that you couldn't leave behind? And what is something you brought in the van you thought you needed and have never touched? I think Luke asked for my three favorite features and three biggest regrets when it comes to my van because he's finishing his own van right now. So I will share a few of my favorite and least favorite things. Uh, first favorite thing is my soundbar. I have a soundbar speaker above the foot of my bed mounted on the wall of the van and I have a subwoofer that goes with it under the bed. I love that thing. I was really sad that I had to get rid of it when I moved into the van. And then I realized, oh, I don't have to get rid of it. I can put it in the van. And that has been awesome. I listen to it all the time. I listen to music or podcasts or audiobooks when I'm cooking meals or just alone in the van doing a little hangboard workout or stretching or whatever I'm doing. And that's awesome, especially having something there to listen to a podcast or an audiobook. Being alone and traveling on the road can really make a big difference. So really happy I kept that and put it in the van. Uh, something I've brought in the van that I thought I would need and never touched. I have a whole basket of physical therapy tools that I keep under the bed in my van. And man, I never use anything in there. I've got self-massager type things. I've got little workout type things. I've got an ab roller, I think, in there. Bands for stretching. A yoga block. I've got a lot of stuff in there that I almost never use. I think it's just the out of sight, out of mind thing. So I keep it in there because I like the idea of having that stuff available, but I have not used that stuff nearly as much as I thought I would with all the downtime and stuff like that. So to get to Luke's question, a few other things that I regret and love in the van. I wish I would have gotten all dimmable lights for the inside of the van. I have four overhead lights that are supposed to be warm white. That's the color, but they're way too bright. They're really harsh light in this tiny space, and I almost never use any of them. So I ended up installing some little rope lights around the whole ceiling, the whole inside of the van to create better atmosphere. Those are really nice. They're dimmable, and I really like those. But I wish I had put in only dimmer lights from the get-go. So that's something to keep in mind. What else? Oh, I'm really glad I got a van with lots of windows. I got a Dodge Promaster. I've got the big window on the slider door. I've got windows on the back that are not tinted. So they let in a lot of natural light during the day. I even installed a tiny slider window at the head of my bed on the side of the van. I sleep sideways in the back. 
And I really love having all those windows and all that natural light. And the slider window in the back has a screen on it. And when it's hot in the summertime, opening that and letting a breeze blow across your face when you sleep is kind of life-changing. So I'm really happy that I did that. And then on a similar note, I really am happy that I installed blackout curtains. So I have all the light during the day, but I also have blackout curtains that I can close up at night. I installed those with parachute cord. So I use parachute cord as the curtain rod, basically. I had them altered to fit specific dimensions in the van and those things are awesome. So whenever I'm stuck at a rest stop and there's a super bright light right outside the van or in a parking lot or something, or if I get to bed late and I wanna sleep in, those curtains are awesome. I also keep some magnets on hand so I can snap them into place against the door. So if there's a little crack or things like that letting in light, I can block that out too. So lots of windows and blackout curtains are two more things that I'm really glad I did. So I hope that's helpful, Tyler, Ethan, and Luke. And Luke, best of luck finishing your own van. This question is from Tyler. Describe your workstation from your van. What's your internet setup and how reliable is it? Do you have a dedicated workspace? How often do you utilize coffee shops or other establishments to work from? Yeah, so a really good question. I usually sit and work in my passenger chair. It's a swivel chair, so I spin it around and face the main cabin, and I sit in that chair and edit a lot of my podcasts. I have a little wood block that is actually the insert for the sink as part of the countertop. Um, and I just put that on my lap and set my laptop on that. And I had planned to get a table and never got around to it because that system works really, really well. So I'll sit and do that. And then when I need to change things up, I will actually put that block of wood with my laptop on it on my bed, which is kind of a perfect height for a standing desk. So I will also use my bed as a standing desk and work from there. And that works pretty well. Um, for internet, I just have an unlimited cell phone plan with Verizon. And if I'm in the van, I actually just tether my iPhone to my MacBook Pro. And the key thing here is to get a physical cable to tether your phone, because that immediately will drastically improve the speed of your hotspot. So I think it's like a lightning to USB or USB-C cable. I found one on Amazon and plugging my phone into my laptop directly works pretty dang well. I actually have done most of my remote interviews on Zoom using that setup. And as long as I have a strong phone connection, that is good enough. As far as using coffee shops or other establishments, I really like going to libraries. I think that is my favorite place to have a work day. Um, I really like the atmosphere. It's nice and quiet. They have great Wi-Fi, And it's really nice to not feel like you have to buy something and feel guilty about being there for four hours after buying a coffee. So yeah, uh, I try to find a library when I can. Or, and this was a tip from my friend William Woodward, who's been on the podcast, Something I've been doing more and more is getting a gym membership at a climbing gym. If I'm in Colorado, for instance, or in St. George, or even here in Washington, get a membership to the gym and just go 
post up there on a work day. They have great Wi-Fi. They have showers. I can do some stretches and maybe some light training or just move around more than I would if I was sitting in my van all day. So that's a really nice option as well. Again, you don't feel like you have to buy something when you're in there, which is really nice. And for me, I feel like I need to utilize something like that at least once a week just to take care of all my internet needs. So I can record a podcast from the hotspot. I can do very basic stuff like answer an email or things like that from the hotspot. But at least once a week, I need to go into a library or a gym or a coffee shop or something to get the good Wi-Fi, to upload all my stuff and to build the website for the week, to do all the show notes and things like that. So at least once a week. And if I'm in an area where I have a library or gym, I might go in there every single workday. So maybe that's three or four days during the week. This question is from Matt. My wife and I did a van life eight month rock climbing tour across Canada, coast to coast. It was awesome. At one point we had a stowaway mouse in our van for three nights. We couldn't figure out what was haunting us. So any unwelcome guests in the van? Yes, that is one of the challenges of the van life. I have had mice in my van before. I actually keep some mouse traps in the van now just in case but I haven't had to use them. What I've realized is there's actually a pretty simple fix, which is just to make sure you don't have any loose food left out. So anything like crackers or rice cakes or granola or things like that that are easy for mice to get to. If I have a mouse problem or I'm afraid of having a mouse problem, I would just make sure I put those in a sealed Tupperware before going to bed and that seems to be a pretty good fix so far. This is another question from Jordan. How long have you had your van? Did you live out of another vehicle or a tent or a cave or closet, etc. beforehand? Thoughts on dirtbagging now versus then? Yeah, so the van is kind of my living on the road 2.0. Uh, I did a long road trip years ago when I was in my Subaru Outback after graduating from college, I took about six months and just traveled around the States, sport climbing and bouldering. And I used that Subaru for a lot of weekend trips over the next few years when I lived in Bend, Oregon. And man, I got to say the van is a life-changing upgrade from the Subaru. It is so, so nice to be able to stand up inside. That's probably the biggest thing. Being able to stand up in your van and cook a meal makes it feel infinitely more like a house or like a normal living situation than crawling in and out of the back of a Subaru or a tent. So yeah, I've been in the van for about two and a half years now. I've been on the road for almost two years of that time. And I know you have a van, Jordan, so maybe you feel like this too. I don't think it's even fair to call it dirtbagging anymore. It's pretty plush. Um, I rented a little eight by eight room in a friend's house before moving into the van. And I often say that it doesn't feel that different from my lifestyle back then. So yeah, the van is an awesome upgrade. And I would have a very hard time going back to a Subaru 
now that I'm in my 30s and have been spoiled with the van. Okay, I've got some hilarious questions from Michael. Do you use a pee bottle? If yes, how long do you use the same bottle? If you have company, do you hide your pee bottle? If you had company and they got a pee, would you offer use of your pee bottle? And how long is that pee bottle sloshing around full of pee in the van before you dump it? Wow, the hard-hitting questions from Michael. Uh, Yes, I do have a pee bottle. I'm a big fan of using an old orange juice bottle. Every now and again, I go to a Whole Foods and I buy their organic orange juice, one of those white opaque bottles with the screw on top. I find the citrus is really nice because it cuts some of the pea smell and the bottle's a good size and shape, etc. So uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say how long I use the same bottle. Um, it depends, I guess. But I definitely recommend replacing that thing from time to time. I don't go out of my way to hide it from people when I have company. It just kind of lives in the storage area beneath my bed and is kind of out of sight the rest of the time. I don't really want to have a pee bottle sitting out in the open, even if I don't have company. So it's kind of always hidden. No, I don't think I would let company use my pee bottle unless it was dire circumstances and they were going to pee themselves. I guess I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. And how long is the pee bottle sloshing around full of pee before I dump it? Hmm. Not very long because you want to be able to use that thing when you need to go. So a lesson that I've learned too many times is to always dump the pee bottle whenever you get a good opportunity so that you don't get into the situation where you have to pee and your pee bottle is full. Thank you for your inquiries, Michael. Okay, this question is from Logan. In your opinion, what are the most important considerations for a vehicular living situation? And why did you choose the option you chose? This can be as broad as different platforms entirely, tow behind, slide in, van, car, or within common van brands and layouts. Just wanna get your input. Yeah, this is an excellent question. I really value convenience. I want to be able to jump in my van and go without having to pack things up. And I really like being able to just pull over at a rest stop if I'm on a long drive or just pull into a campsite and immediately go to sleep without a bunch of setup there as well. So I've always wanted a van. The only downside to the van compared to like a truck, for instance, is I'm definitely more limited in where I can go when it comes to like gnarly dirt roads and snowy conditions and things like that. But if you're chasing climbing weather and unless you're like really into mountain climbing or putting up like gnarly first ascents out in the middle of nowhere, I don't find that stuff limits me very often at all. Most of the time, You're just driving somewhere, there's a parking lot, and my van can get there just fine. So for me, the main thing is I wanted the high roof. I really wanted to be able to stand up in my van. And I guess I haven't said this yet. I really like my van. It's a Dodge Promaster 2500, the 136-inch wheelbase. So it's the high roof, the tall van, but the short van. 
and I really dig it. I can stand up in it. I can sleep sideways. The Promaster is a little bit wider than some of the other popular vans. And I liked how short it was. It's big enough for me. I think it'd be challenging to live in this van with another person or, you know, a family or a dog or whatever else. But it's just me in here, so it's plenty of space. And I really like how easy it is to drive. Um, I think it's only one foot longer than my old Subaru was. And it feels so much bigger. And it honestly feels easier to drive than the Subaru. So, yeah, those are kind of all the considerations that... I was weighing when I made my decision and I'm super happy with my van. This question is from Howard. Howard writes, this question pertains to van life and it might be rather personal. I get it if you prefer not to answer, but what do you do for medical insurance? I'm in a financial position right now where I can hit the road, but need to hang on to my job for the insurance. Again, if you don't feel like sharing, no worries. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Howard. Yeah, I feel comfortable talking about that. The first thing I'll say is that health insurance is really complicated. I was actually shocked at how complex it was to navigate when I first left my job and started living this lifestyle. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out on your own. So I would recommend finding a broker that you trust or someone who's really informed about this stuff to help you. Um, a great resource is actually Chad Andrews at clippingchains.com. He has written about this on his blog. He has been on the Nugget Climbing Podcast, so I will link to his episode in the show notes. But he's written about this on his blog, again, clippingchains.com. It's a great resource. I think he's even talked about this now on his own podcast. But yeah, he's really knowledgeable and really a great resource when it comes to being a climber, living the dirtbag lifestyle, and figuring out how to navigate health insurance. But for me right now, I'm still eligible for Oregon Medicaid. So yeah, I'm still getting Medicaid, but probably for not too much longer. I'm happy to say I'm finally making enough income that I'll have to pay for my own health insurance pretty soon here. So great question. I'll probably have more information in another few months when I make the switch, but I'm actually planning to reference that information from Chad Andrews, clippingchains.com myself to help answer this question. So yeah, it's really challenging to navigate this stuff, but at the end of the day, it is just a dollar value. So if you're financially ready to hit the road and make a shift in your lifestyle, I would encourage you just to crunch the numbers and figure out how much more money you need to bring in or save etc. to be able to cover the health insurance side of the equation. Don't let it feel like the single reason why you can't take the road trip that you're dreaming of taking. All right, this question is from Nolan. Have you settled into the new lifestyle as a full-time van lifer podcast superstar yet? Or do most days still feel pretty surreal? It seems like you've hit the point where the podcast can become a sustainable income source. First off, the podcast superstar part of that is very flattering. So thank you for that, Nolan. Yeah, it's kind of a funny mix of both somehow. Like on one hand, and maybe you guys can relate to this, life somehow just feels really normal, you know? It's just, you go through some big change and then 
we're really good at adapting to a new normal. So in a lot of ways, it just feels really regular. It still just feels like my life. But then somehow at the same time, it kind of blows my mind every single day that I get to do this, that I'm actually living at least a version of the dream life that I was daydreaming about when I lived in Bend and was stuck in my cubicle. And yeah, that's still really awesome, still really exciting to me. And I still feel grateful for it every day. So the new lifestyle does feel kind of normal a lot of the time, but I really try not to take any of it for granted. And it's really exciting to me that it has become financially sustainable, at least as long as I'm living this pretty simple life in a van. But it's also still growing really fast. And I'm really excited to see what happens in the next year. And it's all thanks to you guys. It's all thanks to patrons who are the ones submitting all these questions and who support the show and all you guys listening as well. So yeah, it means the world to me. It's crazy to me that anyone is listening to this and uh, I get to have all these amazing conversations with heroes of mine. It's just incredibly special. So appreciate you guys a lot. These next questions are from Desiree. Desiree writes, I'd imagine you get to have a different mindset and day-to-day interaction with the world by living in a van. What are some favorite experiences you get to have living on the road? What are some pitfalls or issues you've encountered that you weren't expecting? Also, what are some general tips for van life, etc.? For example, favorite go-to recipes, how to get water, keeping things clean, etc.? Ah, such good questions. I think my favorite thing about living on the road is just the novelty of it. It's really special to change the scenery so often, to spend most of my nights camping and to wake up to a beautiful view in the morning, many mornings, not all the time, but many mornings. That feels really, really special. And I think the novelty of moving around goes a long way as far as making life feel really rich and really full. I don't know about you guys, but I always feel like life becomes a blur whenever I get into too much of a routine and things start to feel like Groundhog's Day. That's kind of when like full months or even years can just kind of drift by and I don't even know what happened. I kind of feel that way when I think back to my life in Bend and climbing at Smith Rock. It was just, it's all kind of a blur looking back. So Yeah, that's my favorite thing, I think, is I still try to have something of a routine and I'm not always as present as I would like to be, but there's just so many new experiences baked into this lifestyle. It just keeps things feeling really interesting and fresh, and I love that. Uh, Some pitfalls. No one ever thinks about car trouble when they romanticize about van life, including myself. I knew it was a thing, but I've had to do work on the van several times in the last couple of years living on the road. And man, all the freedom of van life drops to zero really fast as soon as you are having car trouble. So yeah, spent some days this summer living in the parking lot of an auto shop. That was not super awesome. I recorded a podcast from the courtyard of a Whole Foods when my van was in the shop in Boulder. 
Yeah. You just kind of go from feeling totally free to feeling homeless and stuck pretty quickly whenever something is wrong with your vehicle and you have to get it fixed. But luckily, in my experience, people are really supportive. And I think living in a van helps me appreciate just how many cool and kind people there are out there in the world. That's been a pretty special experience as well. People want to help you when your van's broken down and you're stuck. And yeah, that's pretty cool. As far as van life tips, for recipes, I would just set up your van in a way where you have a normal kitchen. I have a two burner stove. I have a fridge. I have a bunch of seasonings and things like that. So I cook pretty normally. I probably cook more one pan recipes than I would if I lived in a house. But to be fair, I kind of did that before anyway. I just like the convenience of just cooking everything in one pan. So I've always done that. I do a lot of stir fries and things like that. And then I just change the seasonings to have some variety. A tip for getting water is to go to Walmart. You can find a Walmart in most cities around the country. And most of them have those like glacier water fill stations where you can fill a five gallon jug. That's what I do. I have a pretty simple sink setup. I have just a couple, I think they're six gallon blue water tanks that I use with my sink. I store an extra one under the bed and I can swap them out pretty easily. And that's really nice because you can just throw them in a shopping cart, roll into Walmart, get really, really nice, clean, purified water that tastes great from Walmart for like 39 cents a gallon, and then you're good to go. So yeah, that's a tip for water. And then keeping things clean is a little bit wasteful, but I really like buying those blue shop towels, paper towels. Uh, again, you can get those at Walmart or you can get them from any auto store like Napa or O'Reilly's or things like that. They're super absorbable. They don't take up very much room and they don't unravel when you roll them, which is really nice. So yeah, I find that one roll goes way further than a normal roll. So still, again, a little bit wasteful if you can get by with cloths that you can throw in the washing machine. It's probably a great way to go. But I really like having those on hand to keep everything clean and tidy. Thank you for your questions, Desiree, and I hope some of that is helpful. This question is from John. John writes, hello, Steve. <laughs> How do you handle the long winter nights while in the van? Are you mostly alone or do you have friends to hang with? Love the podcast. Thank you, John. Yeah, it's a mix. Depends where I am. Depends what I'm doing. Um, I really like alone time. I've talked about that before. I'm definitely introverted and I kind of need my alone time. So I'll often spend the evenings working on podcast stuff, honestly. I'll often climb during the day and then maybe do a little more work in the evenings or just read a book or sometimes I'll watch a show, turn the heater on, turn on the nice rope lights and create a decent atmosphere and then just kind of relax. So yeah, I don't mind being alone. Um, depends where I am though. I'm about to head back to Waco Tanks for January and February, and I'll be camping in the desert along with all the other climbers. And that's usually a pretty social scene. So 
when I'm doing that, I'll be hanging out with friends in the evenings more often. So yeah, it's a mix and I really like it that way. This question is from Alexandra. Alexandra writes, Hi, Stephen. My question is, how is dating life when living in a van? I've always wondered about this. Hope all is well and happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays to you too. I actually had three people ask me about van life dating. So I'll tackle it for all three of you. And the short answer is it's kind of tough. It has to look pretty different, I think, than conventional dating. And to be quite honest, I haven't done much of it. Um, I've always been one to let my romantic relationships happen pretty organically. I've never put a lot of effort into going on dates and things like that. So yeah, haven't done much dating living in the van. I think it's tough. I think it's tough to find a committed monogamous relationship, a long-term relationship, if that's the type of thing that you're looking for and asking about. And some people do it. Often when it works, it's two people that are both traveling and living the kind of van life lifestyle. Either they've been in a relationship and choose to try that lifestyle together, or they move into a vehicle together or they're both in their own vehicles and they just kind of have this caravan relationship. I think that seems kind of rad and idyllic, but definitely hard to find. And then I have some friends who just have different expectations for dating, living this lifestyle. They'll do short-term dating where they show up somewhere for a season and they might use a dating app to go on dates and they just try to be really clear about expectations like, hey, I'm only here for two months and if you want to spend time together during that time, that'd be awesome. But then I want to be really clear that I'm going to be leaving after that and I don't plan to try to maintain a long distance relationship. Obviously, that's up to the person, up to you and up to the other person. But yeah, I have some friends for who that has worked really well. And they've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of that as have their partners. And often when I think about friends of mine, dating someone is the thing that pulls them out of the van life lifestyle. Like they get into a relationship and it's going really well. And that relationship becomes a high enough priority that they settle into a different lifestyle, you know, living in the same area. Maybe they still mix in some travel, but they're a little bit more rooted so that they can put more energy into that relationship. But, but yeah, it is challenging and I'm still trying to figure out what I want it to look like and whether I want to put energy into that or continue to just do what I've always done, which is let it happen organically and cross that bridge when I come to it. Okay, this question is from Shanna. Are you living in the van nonstop or when you settle into an area, are you taking a break and staying at friends' houses intermittently? And do you think you can do it indefinitely or do you foresee life circumstances changing your living situation someday? Yeah, I'm pretty much living in the van nonstop. Uh, the couple exceptions are visiting my family back in Washington. I've made a couple trips back here each of the last two years to visit family. 
And when I do, I often spend at least part of the trip living in the house. That was a really nice thing this summer when we were hitting record-breaking highs and it was like 80 degrees at night. <laughs> Would have been miserable to try to sleep in the van. So yeah, I have some breaks here and there, but for the most part, I actually prefer to live in my van. I usually try not to sleep in a city. I try to sleep out in some beautiful area and I really like it. It's, I have my van set up in a way that's really comfortable. It's my home. I feel cozy in here and it gets really hard to be in and out of people's houses. You know, a lot of people offer like if, you know, you can sleep on the couch or in the guest room or whatever, you can sleep in a real bed, but it just kind of makes me feel scattered to have most of my shit in the van and then to bring a few things inside and where's my toothbrush and yeah, I don't know. I actually really prefer to just do my thing and live in my little house on wheels most of the time. And as far as doing it indefinitely, indefinitely is a long time. I don't think I'll do this forever. Uh, I'm still really enjoying it and don't have any plans to change my living situation anytime soon. But I think I would love to own a house someday. I think I'd really enjoy having a little podcast studio office, maybe a recording studio all in one and having a home wall again. I think that'd be really fun. And it just feels nice to be grounded, have a home base. And I miss that sometimes. So yeah, I think I will shift that way eventually, but I do hope to keep this lifestyle as at least part of my lifestyle. And I might do that forever. I might always have a part of the year where I'm in the van and traveling and chasing the climbing weather, but who knows? I'm definitely open to circumstances changing and I'm sure they will because that is life. This question is from John. Coffee or tea and what is your method of brewing? If coffee or tea, loose leaf or bag, and you got any tats? No, I don't have tats. I'll answer that last one first. I've thought about getting tattoos for many years and just never have. I don't know. I'm the type of person who probably overthinks that sort of thing and thinks it needs to be the perfect idea before I pull the trigger. But at this point, I really like that I don't have any tattoos, actually. So maybe someday, but no tats for now. And then I am a coffee drinker and I make pour-over coffee. I've got a little collapsible pour-over funnel thing and I use paper filters and just make one cup in the morning and it's great. I've got a couple questions from Brian. What is one van life product or habit that you just can't get behind? As a camper, I don't get the hype for rooftop tents. One thing I can't really get behind is the shower tent that some people have, like the collapsible shower tent. I totally understand having a solar shower. I don't have one myself, but I think that could be kind of cool. But then like having an actual shower tent that gets all wet and then you have to dry it out somehow and then you have to store it. I think I would just shower naked. And of course, I'm a guy, so I can say that. But I think I would just do that in the desert 
off in the middle of nowhere, or I would wear a swimsuit and that would solve that problem and skip the hassle. I've never used one. They just seem like they would be kind of annoying to me. Brian also asks, what are the things you've knowingly given up for van life, podcasting, and dirtbagging that you miss? Not fully regret, just miss. Yeah, I think this ties into my answer to Shanna. Sometimes you just miss having normalcy, you know? Living in a house, having a climbing gym to go to, having a normal schedule and friends that you hang out with on Friday night. I like having a routine and sometimes that's hard moving around and living in a van. So yeah, it's a little bit of the grass is greener thing. I think overall, I prefer this lifestyle to what I was doing before this at least, but yeah, I would say normalcy living in a house is something I miss some of the time. And what alternate life would you be content with if you didn't have the life you have right now? I feel like you could be a great manager because you like to listen to people. Well, thank you, Brian. I actually think I am a really good manager. I've worked as a manager a couple different times and for a couple different companies, and I think I was good at my job, but I didn't love it. I think I might be happier as a teacher. I don't know. I've never tried that, but before stumbling into the podcast idea, I was considering going back to get my master's in engineering and becoming a community college professor, teaching engineering courses or something along those lines. So yeah, I think I would have been pretty happy in that alternate life. I'd probably want to be based somewhere with really good local climbing and a really good climbing gym. And then I think I would have liked that balance of still having the summers off a chunk of time off to go travel and really dive full on into climbing for certain parts of the year. This next question is from Daniel. Daniel writes, I think I remember you mentioning you played video games in a podcast when you were discussing addictive personalities. What is your relationship with video games these days with your van lifestyle? What games did you used to play or currently play? And then Daniel writes, I basically traded a video game addiction for a climbing addiction, and I found that my passion for climbing has been a much healthier outlet than my passion for video games. I think some other viewers could relate. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I feel much the same way. I've always been addicted to things that have measurable progress, and I think that was at least a big element of what made video games so addicting. You're always chasing something, you're improving your stats, you're trying to level up and things like that. So similar to you, climbing has turned out to be a way healthier outlet for that thing, whatever that thing is. And I think making the podcast is another healthier outlet for me. Creating something, growing something, trying to level up at something, climbing and podcasting in my lifestyle now. I'm really grateful that I've found healthier ways to channel that energy. So yeah, I was pretty addicted to video games when I was a teenager, probably like 15, 16, 17 years old was when it was at its peak. And I kept playing a little bit in college here and there, but the more I got interested in climbing, the less interested I was in video games and I basically don't play any anymore. 
I've actually tried returning to games. It's so easy now with our smartphones. And I've chased that nostalgic feeling that I remember having. And I actually sometimes wish I could feel that again because it was really exciting and fun. And it's just not the same. I don't really know what the difference is, but when I've tried to pick up games in the last few years, they just feel like more of a waste of time or rather that they are pulling me away from things that I'd rather spend my time doing or that feel more life-giving or fulfilling. So that's not to hate on video games at all. Um, I think they actually did teach me a lot of lessons and I totally respect people that continue to play as adults. There's a lot of really cool games out there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't hit the same as it used to. And I've kind of let it go. This question is from Liam. Liam writes, one thing I'd love to hear about is your decision to live to climb, aka quit your daytime job and just climb. Did you save up for a certain period or did you just say, fuck it, I'll figure it out? <laughs> kind of similarly, what is your climbing story? When did you start to feel like climbing could or would be such a big part of your life? And how did you balance that with societal pressure to earn a wage, do things for retirement, blah, blah, blah. And Liam also writes, you may have already answered these questions previously. I'm a newer patron but I always find myself wondering these questions when listening to The Nugget. And then finally, Liam writes, you rock, really appreciate you. Thank you, Liam, I appreciate you too. Uh, the first part of the question, yes, I did save up money for quite a long time. No, I did not just say, fuck it. Um, I don't recommend that as much as I do encourage people to take uncomfortable leaps and pursue things that they care about and challenge the societal norms of finding a normal, respectable job and all that sort of stuff. I really am glad that I took time to prepare. So I saved up enough money to live on the road for an entire year without having to monetize the podcast at all. And I'm really glad I did that that gave me a buffer to put all of my energy into making the best podcast I could without feeling the pressure and the stress of money. So yeah, I definitely recommend having some sort of a plan before just saying fuck it and quitting your job. But I will also say that if it feels like a priority to you, if it feels important to you, you can definitely make it happen. I mean, Everyone's circumstances are different and some people are going to have more restraints and more responsibilities than others. But if you want to change your lifestyle and if you've been telling yourself all these stories about why you can't, I would just encourage you to look closely at those and to challenge them and see if they're true. Is it really impossible for you or do you just need to change your priorities? And again, no wrong answer there, but just a good question to start with. And then as far as my climbing story, Liam, I would point you to a reverse interview that I did on the podcast. I think it was episode 44. I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode. But yeah, episode 44, I did a reverse interview where Ethan Pringle came on again and interviewed me and... I talked about how I got into climbing and shared some of my climbing story. And I think that episode will answer 
all of your other questions. These following questions are from Jonathan. What is your relationship to mindfulness or meditation? How do you bring mindfulness or meditation into your life? How do you bring it into your climbing? How does it affect your climbing? Thanks, Jonathan. I thought these were really cool questions. I didn't quite know where to put them. So hopefully this category makes sense. And hopefully, Jonathan, you were able to find this and you're listening right now. I would say that mindfulness in particular and meditation as well have had a profound impact on my life. I don't practice every single day. Um, I've had chapters of my life where I have practiced every day for years at a time. And it is actually something I'd like to get back to as a more regular practice. It kind of ebbs and flows, which I don't think is the worst thing ever. I'm kind of becoming more and more okay with doing things in cycles and not stressing about doing all of the things that are good for us all the time. I think that can be really overwhelming. So don't stress about mindfulness or meditation practice, I guess, is the takeaway there. But yeah, I have been using an app called Waking Up. Uh, it's Sam Harris's app. It's a daily mindfulness practice. I think he also has some meditation content on his app as well. But I have used that for years now. I've done hundreds of sessions of mindfulness there, and I find that to be really, really helpful for self-awareness, um, for being less emotionally reactive to things, to being a little bit more centered and to be able to look at things that are happening around you a little more objectively. Yeah, that shift can and has had a really profound impact on my life, and I think it automatically affects climbing without really even intending for it to. And, you know, I've talked to Hazel Finley about her idea of being with each move. That's a phrase that she told herself on the root magic line to be present while she was climbing. And Kyra Condi just talked about this in our recent episode about this lesson she got from her sports psychologist about being present and being with the climbing that she was doing right now, instead of getting ahead of herself and thinking about how awesome it would be if she sent the route or whatever. It's a really common idea and I think is really helpful for climbing. And yeah, I think mindfulness practice has just helped me be better at being present while I'm climbing, not getting ahead of myself, things like that. So yeah, I use that app quite a lot. I recommend it. And then I'll make another recommendation for meditation. And this time it's a book and it's called Stress Less, Accomplish More. And it's basically a very practical meditation practice for skeptical people that just want to get the benefits of it and the productivity benefits and things like that. But it's really great, I think. It lays out a really simple practice that... I've found to be really helpful for getting rid of mental clutter and just making me feel a little bit lighter and freer of mind. So again, that book is Stress Less, Accomplish More, and you don't even have to read the whole thing. Just skip to the part where the author lays out the practice and then try it for a few weeks. The rest of the book is really just selling you on this idea of meditation practice and convincing you that it's worth trying. So 
if you need that, then by all means, go ahead and read it. But if you think it's worth trying, you can buy the book, skip to the practical part, and just try it for a few weeks and see what happens. So yeah, I hope that answers your questions, Jonathan. I will link to both those resources in the show notes, and they're also both featured on Stephen's favorites as well. Okay, we're on to a new category. These are fun or funny or random other questions. The first ones are from Tyler. What's the weirdest smell you've had in the van and what caused it? What meal did you cook in the van and then regretted after smelling it for the next few days? I think I've cooked fish in the van once and never did it again. As far as cooking, that's one that comes to mind. Fish is just a particularly pungent smell. But otherwise, I think it's just the gray water tank. That's something that I'm sure every van lifer can relate to, especially in the summer months when it's really hot outside. If you're not careful about the gray water tank, it can get really stinky and start to become an ever-present odor in the van. So yeah, that gets kind of gnarly. It's really hard to clean those things too if you're not willing to put nasty chemicals down the drain. So that's something that I still battle with during the warmer months. And Tyler also writes, what's the most ridiculous outfit you've climbed in? If there isn't anything, then why not? Oh man. I remember a season when I was probably 20 years old, I was working for the Forest Service in Leavenworth and climbing a lot in the evenings. And I was trying a boulder problem called Tin Man. It's a really classic V7, the sit start. And it was really hot one day, so hot that I ended up stripping down to my underwear. I was climbing on it alone and it was hot and I just kept taking clothes off until I was in my underwear. And then it occurred to me that it would be funny to climb it naked. Just me bouldering with my climbing shoes and nothing else. No chalk bag, just a bucket of chalk on the ground and my climbing shoes trying this boulder problem. And I didn't do it that day. I got really close. So then I came back later in the week and it was much colder outside. It was definitely not underwear climbing conditions, but I felt like I had to finish what I set out to do, so I stripped down to my birthday suit and I sent Tin Man Sit. So, I don't know if my birthday suit qualifies as a ridiculous outfit, but there you go. These questions are from a different Tyler. Any plans to head out east? Nothing better than southern sandstone. I'd love to go, it looks amazing, but no, I don't have any plans at this time. There's too much to do, never enough time, but I would love to check it out. Uh, dream climbing trip, where to? Man, so many places. Um, I've been really psyched on bouldering, as you all know, and I'd really love to go to Rocklands. That feels really high on my list right now. And then another place that I've always wanted to go is Flatanger in Norway. Really steep granite cave climbing, and I'm just really curious about that. It seems like it is the single closest sport climbing area in the world to the granite bouldering that I love in Leavenworth and do really well on. So I'd just love to try it someday and just see if I do well there and see what it's like. I think that'd be really fun. 
Um, I'm also a huge climbing history nerd. I'd love to go to Bukes in France. I'd love to spend time in Fontainebleau. I'd love to check out some of the limestone crags in the UK where there's tons of sport climbing history, routes I've read about in books. Yeah, those are a few more places I dream of going whenever someday comes. Tyler also writes, if you could spend a day climbing with any climber, dead or alive, who would it be and where? Man, such a hard question. There's so many people I would love to spend a day climbing with. So I'm just going to go with the first one that comes to mind. I would love to spend a day with Adam Andra. I wouldn't even need to climb very much. I would just be fascinated to watch that guy go through a normal climbing day. I'd be asking him questions nonstop the whole time. And I'm sure I would learn so, so much from spending a day climbing with him. So I don't know why that popped into my mind. Um, I'm fascinated by him. You know, he's the best there is. And that's who came to mind first. So there you go. I've got a couple questions from Brian. What other hobbies do you have on the side right now when you need a break from training or climbing, whether planned like cold weather or unplanned like a small injury? Man, I have to say, I don't really have any right now. Um, climbing and then the podcast and building a business around the podcast pretty much take up all my time. That's pretty much all I do. And anytime I have extra time these days, I really feel like I need to just turn my brain off and just veg out, watch a movie, uh, hang out with friends, catch up on my social life a little bit, just sit and have a nice conversation with someone in the van or around the fire or things like that. Uh, I like to read books. I feel like I haven't had as much time to read as I would like in the last couple of years. So yeah, those things are always at the top of my list whenever I have extra downtime. Go on a walk, listen to an audiobook or a podcast or music. I love to do that as well. So if I had more time or if climbing became less of a priority for some reason, I would play more music for sure. I would love to get deeper into music production and it's just one thing too many at this stage in my life. So I feel like I always want to do it and never quite get to it. But that's okay. I really like what I'm doing right now in my life and what I'm prioritizing. And all that stuff feels like it's in the right balance for now. Another question from Brian. In the spirit of the dinner party question, if you could take a group of people alive or dead on a multi-pitch climb for a day, who would they be? I'd actually love to take two friends of mine on a multi-pitch climb. Uh, my friends Brandon and Yvette. I don't get to see them very often, but they're dear friends of mine. They live down in California now. And I took them on a multi-pitch climb at Smith Rock years ago, and they're both relatively new to climbing, or they were at the time. And I just got to experience the excitement and the fear and the adventure of it through their eyes and it was so much fun and as i said i don't get to see those guys enough and i'd love to do it again so those two would be at the very top of my list all right final category here these are questions about podcasting 
and what I've learned from doing the podcast and from having all these amazing conversations on the show. So here we go. This first question is from my pal, Ryan. Ryan writes, now you've got about 100 episodes under your belt. Congrats, which is about 200 hours of advice from total badasses. How do you deal with conflicting advice? How do you separate the signal from the noise and distill down to the content that you can put to use rather than just get overwhelmed with options that all sound like they could work? For example, it would be much easier if there was just one way to think about diet or finger training, but there are now a hundred. Analysis paralysis is setting in. Thank you for this question, Ryan. This gave me a lot to think about and it's a really valuable question. So thank you. I think one blessing that comes from doing so many episodes is that you get to a point where you very obviously can't do it all and you have to let go of making use of all this great advice. What I've noticed has happened over time is that I've started to see really clear trends you know, things that a lot of these top performing climbers are doing that are similar. They might have their own different method, but you can kind of connect principles that seem to be really similar or the same. An example that comes to mind is high intensity bouldering. I've had so many people on the show who climb way harder than I do say that one of the key elements or the key element of their training is really high intensity bouldering sessions, whether that's on conventional gym boulders in the climbing gym, or whether that's on a spray wall or a moon board or whatever. But these people all spend a lot of time trying really hard on some kind of a bouldering wall. And they have been doing that for years and years and years. That's a really simple idea but I think there's a lot to learn from that. I haven't had a single person say that this weight gym exercise was the thing that made them climb so hard or that this one fingerboard protocol was the key to them climbing at their current level. A lot of them use things like that as supplements, but they got really good at climbing by spending most of their time focusing on climbing. And they don't just climb randomly, they are focused. They're trying to get better at specific things. They're trying really hard and they're staying consistent over years and years and years. So that's one example. That's a trend I can't help but notice. And then another big takeaway for me from doing all these interviews is that there's clearly no one best way to get better at climbing. There's so many really strong people out there. All of them that I've talked to have a different approach so far. Even if they're similar, they're different. And so that's helped me let go of this question that I had for a long time, which was, what is the best way? You know, what is the, what should I be doing? What is the best way to train? And that is the wrong question, it turns out. And a better way to look at it is to pay attention to the stories and the examples of people that I talk to that resonate with me at this time. Maybe they figured out a way to address a similar need that I feel like I have in my own climbing, or they have similar life circumstances, or they have similar goals, things like that. And 
prioritizing the lessons that I learn and can apply from those people at this chapter in my life and recognizing that different people, different training ideas, different lessons are going to resonate differently for different people at different times. And that's okay. So yeah, it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the flood of information, but ironically, I think there's a real freedom in recognizing that there's clearly no one right way to do this. And so if someone sparks an idea for you in one of these episodes that worked for them, that you think sounds interesting and worth trying, and you can see how that might lead you where you want to go, then just try it. You can always change it and try something different later. But if it worked for this person, there's a chance it could work really well for you too. And what will likely happen is you'll learn from it and you might tweak it over time and find a way to take things away from it and then make it fit yourself and your life and your needs a little bit more closely. And same thing with diet. I think I've gotten more relaxed as I've heard more people give different advice. There's clearly no one best diet for all of us. There's some individuality and experimentation that should go on. There's probably some principles to stick to, you know, certain things that we've heard time and time and time again from all these different experts. So it's taking those things and asking, how can I fit that to my lifestyle in a way that works for me? I hope that answers your question. Uh, feel free to follow up with me if there's an element I didn't hit on. But thanks again for that question, and I hope some of that was helpful. These questions are from Tyler. If you could collaborate with any podcast, climbing or otherwise, what would it be? That's a tough question. I mean, it's kind of a childish daydream to be involved somehow in some of my favorite podcasts that I listen to, which would be like Tim Ferriss and Armchair Expert. I don't see that happening unless I make a major course change in my life and invent something that changes the world or something like that. But yeah, that's kind of fun to daydream about, like what it would be like to talk with some of my favorite hosts from other podcasts. Another one of my favorite podcasts, and this is a totally different vibe, is a podcast called Everything is Alive. And I think it'd be really fun to be interviewed as a character on that podcast. If you haven't heard of it and don't know the premise, I recommend checking it out. Everything is Alive. And I recommend starting with the very first episode. That'll give you a good idea of what it's all about. Tyler also asks, who are your top three guests you haven't had on the podcast but would love to? Man, top three. I don't know if I can answer that. But to give you guys an idea, basically my list, my podcast guest list is everyone you've ever heard of in climbing or seen in climbing films or read about in the climbing news and things like that. Everyone's on the list. Uh, there's so many people I want to talk to, and I really am trying not to limit myself as far as who I think is possible to connect with. So I know that's a little bit of a cop-out answer, but um, it's true. I don't really have a top three people that 
stand out above all the rest. There's a lot of people who I would love to have on the podcast. And I think that's a good thing because that means there's potential for many more Nugget episodes in the future. This question is from Finn. What interview do you find yourself organically thinking back to the most? Such a good question, Finn. I had to think about this a lot. And in the end, I think the answer was really obvious. I think I think back to my episodes with Steve Mache most often. Uh, he has been coaching me and really helping give me some specific guidance in the last year. And so it's really natural for me to think back to those conversations pretty consistently as I'm going about my climbing and my training and things like that. But honestly, I think about a lot of them. Um, another one I think about a lot lately is my part one with Tom Herbert. That's brought yet another shift in the way that I've been eating and fueling for climbing. I know he doesn't like the term fueling, but yeah, I've been just trying that out and eating more and I've noticed a difference in my climbing and I feel a little more energized. I feel like I have a little bit more output during my sessions and I feel like I'm recovering really well as well. So Dylan Barks is another one I've been thinking about lately because I climbed with him a little bit in Rocky Mountain and have been thinking a lot about how I level up my bouldering and gain some of the strengths that I've always struggled to gain. So yeah, I've thought about his episode quite a lot in the last few months as well, both for the training and also in regards to how he thinks about eating and giving his body what it needs, having gone through an eating disorder himself. So yeah, those are a few that come to the top of my mind. Okay. Final question is from Garrett. Garrett writes, Hey, Stephen, you say that in the past you've been mostly a hermit when it comes to socializing and putting yourself out there. However, I would never be able to tell because you are such a fantastic podcast host. Do you think starting the podcast has made you a better speaker and talker? Do you find it easier and maybe have more confidence when you talk with others in and outside of the podcast? Would love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the great work. You are an inspiration to watch. Thank you, Garrett. That warms my heart to hear all of that. I appreciate the question. Yes, short answer is yes. I do think the podcast has definitely helped my confidence in speaking and talking and meeting new people. If I zoom out and think about it, I definitely feel very different going into these conversations now than I did at the start. I feel a lot more calm and relaxed most of the time in these conversations. But it is kind of interesting. I'm still very much an introvert and still have hermit-like tendencies. And I've kind of always been this way. I've always been pretty outgoing and pretty social and pretty good at meeting people and getting to know them. And I've always enjoyed asking questions and talking and, and yeah, it's always kind of been both. I'm still an introvert and that's something that gets confused a lot. That just means that I need to recharge with alone time more than some people. I think that often gets confused with shyness. I've never really been a shy introverted person. I've always been a pretty outgoing and social 
introvert. So I love being around people. I love meeting new people. I've always been pretty comfortable striking up a conversation at a party or whatever else. But at the end of the day, I just need to go home and recharge on my own. And frankly, I still do that a lot. I mean, I have these conversations on the podcast every week and I get to interact with a lot of you on social media and sometimes at the crag and things like that. But I live alone in a van and I still spend a tremendous amount of time solo and that balance is still really important to me. So maybe that sounds like a contradiction, but I'm still the same mix of both. Although I do agree I think the podcast and just having all these conversations with heroes of mine, people that I never imagined I'd get a chance to meet, I've definitely gotten a lot more comfortable meeting strangers or meeting someone intimidating, things like that. And yeah, thanks again for the question and the compliments. That means a lot. And that is it, my friends, for Q&A number four. Whether you jumped around or listened to the whole thing, thank you so much for listening. I hope something in there was helpful. Thanks again so much to my patrons for the ongoing support and for submitting such thoughtful and fun questions. Really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did as well. And just a reminder, I'm taking the next couple of Mondays off. So if you need more of the nugget to take you through the holidays, you can always go catch up on old episodes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Check out top lists that'll give you great recommendations for different types of episodes, different categories that you are most interested in. And if you run out of those, you can always sign up for Patreon and listen to follow-ups. I've published more than two dozen follow-ups. Many of them are basically full-length episodes some really great conversations there. And if you love the podcast, I think you will really enjoy those. I've got one more follow-up coming out this week with Paige Klassen. That'll be the last thing I published before the holidays. I'll put out a teaser for that. The full thing will be available the same day for patrons. And after that, I'm out taking vacation and I will see you guys again in January. We'll pick up with weekly episodes from there. I've got a lot of amazing guests planned for 2022. Thank you all again. Much love to all of you. Happy holidays. Enjoy yourselves. And we will see you next time. Like we do it.